Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS On Air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much, and welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel. Carol is a well-known gerontologist, has experienced dealing with the issues we talk about on Caregiver SOS On Air, former head of the AAA here in San Antonio and Barrett County, executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation, and a past chair of the board for the National Council on Aging. You are one busy person. I'm hither and yawn. Oh, that's true. And now you're hither. And I'm hither. Yeah, because yawn means going through airport. And as we're, you know, doing the show, the government is shut down and, you know, going through airports is not recommended. No, exactly. So we've got a great guest coming up, Carol White, uh, a professor of nursing at UT Health, talking about a million-dollar grant that came to the city of San Antonio, courtesy of the Wellman Charitable Foundation, UT Health, and Morgan's Wonderland. Right, and the Alzheimer's Association is also a partner, so it, it's exciting. I, I, you know, we're in the planning phase, uh, but this is a game changer for our community. Families with dementia. So, family working with people living alone with dementia, As and well, working yeah. with families living with with dementia, and working with the intellectual developmental disability community who can age into dementia. Wow. Yeah, wow, it's like everybody, right? Takes a village, it is a village. Well, what really gets attention is the uh, fact that there are many people living alone with dementia. And we're going to talk about how surprising that is. We're also going to talk about something that is fascinating because we're about to get some colder weather as we move into January and February. And then, of course, the air conditioners go back on the end of February and it's all over. That's right, it's still cold. But what about exercising uh, in cold weather, do you get as much benefit or less? Well, uh, you know, I saw this headline, could exercising in frigid temperatures make us healthier? And you think about the, those polar bear folks that where they Break run, the ice. they run and they in their swimming trunks and they run and they jump into cold water and they run around or, you know, these people that exercise um, outside uh, with their shirts off or something. I don't know who these people are. So <laughs> so the question was, is jogging in cold weather any better than in an ice warm gym? Um, or how about jumping into the ocean for a frigid swim? And so, you know, the the Scandinavians and the people in Minnesota, I think, are the ones who really <laughs> like to do this. Um, what the theory is, is that you burn, so there's something called brown fat, which I really don't like to think about. No, I don't either. It's, but um, it's the kind of fat that you have that actually burns calories. So that's the good fat that you can burn more of if you... Um, are in colder weather, it, it triggers that. <laughs> the problem is, is that shivering is really not comfortable. And when you exercise, you warm up. So as soon as you warm up, you're not cold. And if you're not cold, then you're not doing cold you're not, getting the you're, not, you're not getting the benefit of it. So if you ate half of a muffin, you would wipe out all of the calories that you actually burned from just being in the cold, the additional calories that you would burn from being in the cold. So... Um, you know, there are some folks, that, there's probably some more study that needs to be done because this particular gentleman in Scandinavia who is, is in this article um, in, has talked to the National Academy of Sciences and, and some of those researchers can actually, 
you know, says that he can control his metabolism. He can ward off illness, you know, with his mind, and he can keep himself warm with his mind. You know, I'm not going to argue about mind over matter because there is a lot that we can do. Right. Um, but in terms of exercising in cold weather, like I said, um, Stay the main thing is just exercise. It doesn't. If you exercise, if it's more fun and you think it's fun to jump in the cold ocean, go do that. Um, but if you prefer a warm gym or you prefer just a walk to the corner in a really good coat with a hat, fine. It's all good. Just exercise. Now, speaking of exercising, I want to jump to something. Uh, that you came across because we laugh about this. The amount of time you need to exercise becomes shorter and shorter and shorter. In fact, I was joking with you the other day. I said, hey, I got my 30-second exercise in. That's right. And and that's, you know, I think that's probably the best news for all of us is that um, exercise is cumulative it can be in short bursts, anything from two minutes to ten minutes. So the study that I was talking to you about was an article out of the New York Times talking about even a ten-minute walk could be good for you. So we're not talking about, you know, speed walking, getting your breath rate up. We're not talking about that. We're talking about a leisurely walk for ten minutes. Just doing that can immediately, now this this is a study um, reported by Gretchen Reynolds, our good friend Gretchen Reynolds at the New York Times, can improve your memory function, help your brain better communicate, the different parts of your brain better communicate. So what they did is they took healthy young college students because they're easy to find and they have pretty good memories at that point. Uh, and they put them on bicycles and then they put them on bicycles and had them pedal. Uh, and they tested their memory. And what they found is that the just the little pedaling that they do actually was a significant increase in their memory. So the harder, they had to do some hard memory problems. So the memory thing was, here's a tree, here's another tree. Was that the same tree I just showed you? So really small variations right. in the trees. And they had to figure out if they'd seen the picture of that tree before. And the harder it was for them to do, the better they did if they had just done... 10 minutes of really easy exercise, equivalent of a really easy walk. So um, exercise made easy, that's the good news. Take that. You know, everybody spends all this money in January. I hate going to the gym in January. I go year-round, and in January, all of the New Year's people are there um, doing their thing, and they start leaving in February. So don't spend the money on the gym you know, just doing what you were talking about, you got your 30 seconds in. If, if you really are not a gym person, you don't enjoy it, find something that you do enjoy, whether it's, you know, walking, if it's going up and down the stairs in your house, you know, all everything counts, gardening, vacuuming, walking, as long as you're not laying down, it counts. So go out and get your 10 minutes of exercise, and your brain's going to work better. You and I were talking about this when we were down in the valley uh, for the uh, give receptions uh, about, hey, did I get my exercise in today? I stood in front of this group. Standing is good. Standing is good. Moving is a little bit better. You know, the last thing, the Cleveland Clinic just published a study in October, and it showed that sedentary adults, right, those are the lying down on the couch potato people, um, had a 500% higher risk of death when compared with older adults who did exercise. Wow. 
And, and that's at the top end, you know, some yeah. of the real the people that exercise regularly all the time. Right. 500% spread at death risk. Amazing. So biggest, the biggest bang for the buck, I say this a lot, is from couch potato to movie. Well, my doggy will appreciate it. Just take her out for a 10-minute walk. I know. I know. I see, I see people walking their dogs in. They're the cold. Those are the true cold weather exercise yes. oh, people yeah. are the ones that are out there walking their dogs. That's exactly right. By the way, if you just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel, and we're delighted to be with you. We're going to be talking in just a few minutes to Carol White, who is a professor of nursing at UT Health and involved in a million-dollar grant on dementia care here in San Antonio, along with the Wellmet Charitable Foundation and Morgan's Wonderland, which is a neat tie-in. Absolutely, and it's dementia-friendly San Antonio. I like that. We've got time for a couple more. And speaking of dementia. Speaking of dementia, quick dimension tests, all the rage now. You read about them everywhere. Can they be wrong? Well, according to the <laughs> Journal of Neuro- Neuro- Neurology Clinical Practice, Yes, and the you know, a lot of practitioners, primary care use like standardized tests to determine um, if someone has dementia, uh, like the mini mental status. That's the one where you count backwards by seven, which I, you know I know people who have memorized counting backwards. By I always seven, practice so before bad. I go to the doctor, right? Yeah, the memory impairment screen is another one. Animal naming, you name as many animals as you can in sixty seconds. Oh, I didn't know that one. Yeah, I, I actually wasn't familiar with that one either. Um, but there are biases that are built into these tests, right? So you have to adjust for the biases. The biases can be education level. Um, it can be racial. Uh, there are different, um, you know, it can be cohort groups. Like, you know, my father might not know computer words the same way that somebody who's younger might know computer right, words. Right, right. <laughs> And so there are biases that are built in, in that are in, built into these language because they got to use the exact language in these tests. And if you do not adjust for the person every time you do the test, then the score can come out wrong. And so the bottom line on this is if somebody scores poorly on a dementia screening tool in primary care, always follow it up with a complete evaluation Carol White, who's our guest coming up, works at UT Health. There are centers in larger communities and, and mid-sized towns, usually, where you can go and get a good workup. Uh, you want a professional to do the full battery of dementia screening because there are other things that are not dementia. You want to rule those out, those urinary tract infections, those, you know, odd, I didn't understand the question or my hearing wasn't good. I had no idea what you just said kinds of poor scores. Interesting. So... The world doesn't fall apart if you didn't do well on a no. Test. It, could, you, it might be the te- it really might be the test wow. in some situations. It's like thir- they had a thirty six percent error rate. That's um, pretty with some high, tests, which is pretty high. When you think about the fear that you put into somebody by fail having them fail the test, or if the test doesn't measure it accurately, not getting the diagnosis and missing that opportunity. So exactly. Wow. You want you want a full workup. Last one. Tech talk. Talking about uh, as it leads up to uh, other issues. So the tech talk was, I thought was really fascinating because there there are some new tools, new technologies. Um, you think about those motion capture suits that people in the movies now wear where they're playing an animated character and they wear the motion capture suit. So that kind of um, technology, they wearable run technology. Yeah, and they run around in front of a green screen. That kind of technology is being tested to identify all, um, Parkinson's tremors. 
So think about a hand movement with a motion sensor on it that tracks everything that you're doing. Those sensors can detect Parkinson's before you notice there's a tremor. It can detect a change in the tremor. It doesn't have to be both hands. But wearable technology is being applied scientifically um, to different uh, conditions and diseases, and Parkinson's is one of those. So it's nice to know that we can get some really accurate readings and diagnose changes in Parkinson's and mobility, or maybe track, you know, Parkinson's is different during different times of the day, uh, depending on the medication. Uh, we could track that using this kind of technology. I was at dinner the other night with a guy about my age who I noticed when he picked up a cup of coffee, his hand was shaking. I hadn't seen that before. I didn't say anything. Right. But it was interesting to see. Right. And so, you so know, my first thought was Parkinson's. Parkinson's. And, and it's, it's, nice to, it's nice to know that um, technology, we hear so much bad in the technology sector, it seems like these days, that there's still some good applications for exactly. it. Exactly. Absolutely. Well, coming up, Carol White from uh, UT Health. We talk with her about a grant to help this community become dementia-friendly. That's pretty exciting. I'm Ron Aaron with Carol Zerniel. You're listening to Caregiver SOS On Air. On 9.30 a.m., The Answer. You ever wonder what you can learn from listening to WellMed Radio? Hi, I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Cora Juke, is here, nurse practitioner. What can folks learn from WellMed Radio? You know, we talk about a lot of things such as chronic disease management, how to manage your diabetes, your blood pressure, but we also talk about social issues such as what WellMed offers and what you can do to improve your health and improve your life. You can catch WellMed Radio Sundays at 5 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Well, thank you so much for sticking with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron. Carol Zerniel, our co-host, is here. And as we've been promising, we've got a great show lined up with Carol White, who is right here in our studio, a professor at the UT Health Science Center's San Antonio School of Nursing, now called UT Health, I guess. Changed the name. She is a researcher and, uh, thanks to a million-dollar grant, is working along with the WellMed Charitable Foundation and others on dementia. Nice to see you. Thanks for coming in. So nice to be here. Thank you so much, Need you to lean into that microphone. So, Carol, uh, tell us about the grant. So, which Carol would you like to answer that question? I know there are two Carols here. The Carol I'm looking at. (laughs) So, um, you know, we uh, have been working together through a project um, with the San Antonio Area Foundation for on caregiving issues. And we were so fortunate. I can remember when Carol White first came to town. Um, and I don't know of anybody who has moved faster, learned more, had, you know, more of an impact. I mean, just really, uh, you know, a phenomenal researcher and, and practitioner, I think. Can I just add, um, I learned early on that it's important to know who your resources are in the city. And I think three years ago, I knocked on Carol's door to say, tell me about dementia caregiving in this city. Right. So and six hours later, you left. <laughs> that's yeah. right. That's right. So um, we, you know, we've been working, uh, uh, thinking about dementia-friendly San Antonio. UT Health has kind of led the way, and the Area Foundation is having had us think about an age-friendly San Antonio. And so we kind of pooled all of those ideas for for a grant application with the Administration on Community Living that we were awarded it's almost a million dollars for three years um, and it really is focusing on increasing the dementia capability 
of San Antonio. And this is where I look at Carol and ask you, what does that mean, increasing the dementia capability of this community? Well, I think it it means if we're going to be an age-friendly city, first of all, we can't be that without addressing dementia because we know that one out of three people over 85 have some form of dementia. So our aging community is much more likely to have dementia than a younger group. So dementia capability is really a very broad term, but I think at a first cut, it really means dealing with the stigma associated with dementia. I think Dementia is still one of the most feared diagnoses, and I think it's a lot to do with the stigma. It's a bit like, I think with dementia, we're where we were with cancer about 40 years ago, where people whispered about the big C and didn't talk about it. Then they started talking about it. They started walking to raise money for it. They worked, started wearing pink ribbons. And so, and then we now have treatments and cures and we have cancer survivors. I think until we start talking about dementia and realizing that people who are diagnosed with dementia are not what we think of, which is someone incapacitated in end stages. They're living with dementia. So I think it's, first of all, the uh, important part of dementia capability is raising awareness, dealing with the stigma. Then education um, for healthcare providers, for people working in the community. And I think an important part of that is working together. No one can do it alone, but it's all of us working together to improve our education and the support that we can provide for for people living with dementia and their family caregivers. What what attracted you to this field? Um, I've worked with family caregivers for over 20 years. Most of my focus was on stroke, although as we talked about, there is an overlap between stroke and dementia. There's also vascular dementia or multi-infarct dementia, which is a form of stroke. So there was an overlap. Um, I think dementia was interesting to me to work in this field because there's such a great need. It was very different than stroke where people suddenly become caregivers, but how do we support caregivers who are evolving, transitioning into this role over time? So I think it was probably from a scholarship, but also from a personal. My mother has dementia almost Everybody I know knows someone with dementia, so it was how can we support this group of people. And what will the money do, the grant? So the grant is really focused on three different areas. I think a neglected important area is people living alone with dementia. So part of the grant is to really identify who those people are, how can we support them in their homes um, to live safely and then recognize when they're no longer safe. Now, I suspect, Carol White, there are a lot of people who heard you say that who said, you got to be kidding. you got to be, people are people living alone living with alone Alzheimer's? with dementia. Well, you know, and the amazing thing about that is, you know, I, I had the same thought you did just hearing it, even though we're a grant partner, it's still kind of jolting. Mm-hmm. But what's amazing is that UT Health and WellMed, through our, through our clinics, are going to identify our own patients, our own members, who are living alone with Alzheimer's. There, you know, there are a lot of people who have mild cognitive impairment, early stage. Obviously, there is a point where they are no longer safe. But we haven't, we haven't even, as a country, have not identified a group of people living alone with Alzheimer's. So for us to change the way we look at people and practice and identify folks, to me, this is one of the biggest takeaways from you know getting these grant funds is develop these protocols to identify the people and exactly the protocol having a tool because I think you see someone and you don't 
maybe aren't so cognizant of how they were the last time, but now you have a tool that says we really need to have worried about if this happened, then we need to put some systems in place. Like what? Um, first of all, perhaps getting a social worker in to look at safety in the home. Um, is the stove being left on? Are they getting out to get the food they need? Is it clean? So somebody really doing a, an assessment of their environment. We often don't do that. They come to the office and I, I have a friend who used to talk to me about the face people could put on um, when they come to see you or the telephone, but it's when you go home and see the conditions and realize that there's safety issues. It's interesting. We've talked about that with a lot of uh, Wellmet providers and others. And Wellmet, of course, now does house calls. And it is such an eye-opener, as you were suggesting. You go into someone's home, and the person who got dressed up and put makeup on, if it's a woman, comes to the office. They're you know, focused. They're attentive. Uh, in their own home environment, they're a very different person. Mm-hmm. And they may have dementia. Yeah, I can remember going to the you know, a doctor's office with my mother, who also had Alzheimer's. And all of a sudden, it was like the molecules lined up. She was totally coherent, totally made sense. You know, everything was fine. You wouldn't even suspect that she had dementia in that short conversation that she had in the doctor's office. Obviously, like the, some of the many mental tests, some of the other tests identified it. But in, in terms of conversation, she really did a great job. You know, we're at home. When, if she was tired or hungry, it, she might not make any sense at all. Right. I think one of the really important things about this grant is that it's it's helping us to provide services that can take a more in-depth look at that individual and their family member, um, if, if there is a family member that's helping to care for them. Um, we all know how long doctor's appointments last, and, and as Carol Zerniel said, um, how people can kind of fake good when they're there, um, and so some of the problems may not be detected. We're talking about, for those of you who just joined us, the impact of a new dementia grant that has come into San Antonio, nearly a million dollars to try to accomplish the three issues we've been talking about with Carol White, who is a professor at UT Health School of Nursing. Carol Zerniel, our co-host, is here, and I'm Ron Aaron. So we just mentioned the the first issue, right, which was, was the Alzheimer's, uh, people with Alzheimer's living alone, Um, And then what's our second group that we're going to be looking at? So we're also looking at people with intellectual and development disability who either have Alzheimer's or are at high risk to develop some form of dementia. This group is at very high risk, and we never saw it in the past, but because of better medical care, people have lived longer, unfortunately, to develop a form of um, dementia on top of their intellectual disability. This is an understudied and I think an undercared for um, group. And I'm really excited. I think Carol really brought up that we need to do things that are fun with them. We need to bring joy into life. And I think what we're doing with Morgan's Wonderland with this group is, is really exciting. How do you identify an individual who may fit into that category? I think it's difficult. I think it's a family who now knows them well, who's been caring for them because of their intellectual disability and sees progression in their in their um, intellect that isn't normal, that's not normal in the pace of where they were. They may exhibit different behavioral symptoms. It can sometimes be very difficult to diagnose because there's already some intellectual right. impairment. Right. And And... There are groups, people with Down syndrome, the gene that impacts Alzheimer's is the same gene that impacts Down syndrome. And so there's a disproportionate uh, likelihood of developing Alzheimer's if somebody has Downs and, and they reach old age. 
then you have, as Carol was mentioned, the people who, you know, a, a certain percentage of the population get Alzheimer's anyway as they grow older. People with intellectual and developmental disabilities are getting older, and so some of them are just going to age into Alzheimer's. Now, you mentioned the Down syndrome uh, individuals who are now often outliving their parents. That wasn't always the case. So they're, in many cases, on their own. I would say that I haven't I haven't met I mean it's not a big group but it's a it's group that a needs group. concern but who I've mostly met is now adult siblings caring for their sibling because their As parents have passed parents, away right. exactly because they've outlived their parents and so now I've met daughters or I mean I've met brothers or sisters who are providing the care and and what's you know exciting is the partnership with Morgan's Wonderland and this has been you know, sort of a dream uh, of mine for an, a number of years since my first visit with Morgan's was you know, it's a it's a safe environment. It's a safely enclosed environment. Um, if, if you're not in San Antonio, you're listening to this on the podcast. You know, it's worth a visit to San Antonio just to see the world's first amusement park for person with disabilities. So and for others as well, wheelchair accessible mm-hmm. swings, a water park you know, that's that's safe for people that have disabilities. It, it's an amazing place. And, and what we are introducing is the idea that dementia-friendly villages have in Europe is that, you know, the one of the founders said, people with Alzheimer's and their caregivers should have fun at least once a day. And so we're lucky we have a Morgan's Wonderland, but my hope is that every community will think about fun it, you know, as we're dealing with Alzheimer's, you know, with the living with Alzheimer's, people should have fun. We'll come right back to this on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. We're talking with Carol White, who is at UT Health Science Center's UT Health's School of Nursing. I hate it when you change your names. It's so confusing. I still say, uh, I won't go to that. SO for Exxon. 9.30 a.m. The Answer is where you find us. Well, we appreciate you being with us on Caregiver SOS on air on 30 a.m. The answer, Carol is fighting with her headsets. How's it coming out? Headset one, Carol nothing. <laughs> That's right. Well, we'll yeah, they work go on over that the, one. That was the backflip. It was a good dismount. We're talking about a dementia grant that has come to the city of San Antonio involving not only Morgan's Wonderland, the WellMed Charitable Foundation, but UT Health as well. And Carol White, a professor of, at the School of Nursing, is with us as we talk about what this grant will mean. And we were talking about everyone caring for someone with Alzheimer's or other forms of dementia should have fun. And you mentioned European models uh, and centers for people with Alzheimer's. What is that all about? Well, the first um, dementia village that I became aware of was is located in Denmark. And what they did is they r- literally created a, a small... Um, residential care community where it has an ice cream shop and a grocery store and a hairdresser shop. But where in the United States we have a nursing home. This is actually an enclosed buildings, multiple buildings. So someone with Alzheimer's can walk out their door, go down the street to the grocery store, get a shopping cart, put things in the shopping cart, you know, check out, not check out. It doesn't really matter. But it's an enclosed safe space where people live, literally just live like they would in town. Um, in a dementia village and they started with one that was a town concept and they and they created one that was a, a rural concept where the people that live there 
you know, can milk the cows and feed the chickens. And um, so it's life in a safe village. And Morgan's Wonderland, you know, struck me as something very similar because they have bracelets that pulse where a person is located like every 90 seconds so that somebody with dementia or any kind of intellectual disability is safe there they it, it's enclosed and you can find them in the park because every 90 seconds they so you can pin their location so it's very easy uh, to locate them and, and i think that you know i i'm hoping that this will be a model that we can ad, we can adapt uh, in the United States, or we can cure Alzheimer's. It's got to be one of the two. How are they funded in Europe? Well, they fu- they funded that one. Um, it, it's nationalized, you know, long-term care. But what they're finding is everyone wants to live in the dementia-friendly village, and it costs more than a traditional long-term care facility. So they're struggling a little bit to keep those financed. It's cheaper to warehouse people. It is cheaper to warehouse than to create a, a, a really open, you know, we talked about our, our friend, um, that wrote the book about living with Alzheimer's, and her favorite place to go was the mall in Las Vegas because she was free just to wander there, um, and she was safe there because she could, you know, get back to her hotel. Yeah, we room. had her on the show. I always oh, wonder eight. how she's doing. Yeah, yes, I would love to have her back and and to just to check in is. with her. Yes, sure. So Carol White, as you think about. Your eyes just lit up when Carol started talking about these Alzheimer's communities. Mm -hmm. Because I think um, you say, how can they afford these things? I think there's more of an advocacy now among people living with dementia. They're saying we need things like this. I think before they didn't have a voice, so we're starting to give voice to people living with dementia. We have two committees that we have people on at the university as well as their family caregivers saying these things are important to our quality of life. And while, you know, we all want a cure, that's you know, what we're all looking for. In the meanwhile, how can we put dementia friendly into practice and support the quality of life of people living with dementia and their family caregivers? And you started out by talking about some of the stigma associated with dementia Mm -hmm. and that attitudinal uh, perception is part of the problem. It's a huge part of the problem. And I think I like to talk about people living with dementia because they're still who they are. They still have their emotions, their personality, their spirit. They have a condition or a disease, but that's not what defines them. They're defined by being human, who they are. And that's, you know, how we start, you know, that's how we stigmatize people with dementia. We see them as people who can't enter into the conversation. I have a woman that we've been working with who told me, when people hear I have Alzheimer's, they stop talking to me and start talking to my husband. And so that's what a dementia-friendly concept initiative does, is say, no, you still have opinions. You, you have a voice still. Of course, in Texas, I hate to say that, a lot of men do that anyhow. Yeah, it's Talk true. Talk to the husband, <laughs> not the wife. But, but, you know, it really is a change. I had the privilege of going to the uh, Dementia Research Summit in Bethesda a year ago where they had somebody that had Alzheimer's. They had someone who had, was living with FTD, someone who was living with Lewy Body's Dementia. And I can remember it was, they, you know, it was like a, the same theme. They kept saying, why don't you just ask us? You know, why don't you just talk to us? You're doing all this research. You're spending money. And you're kind of come up with treatments. And, and, and why don't you just talk to us huh. about we could We could probably be a big help if you would let us in on this conversation. Hey, you talk around us. Right. Right. Interesting. Well, that's a researcher attitude then as well. Mm-hmm. We have we we have a um, another project where we're working with people living with dementia and their families, and I think 
I'm learning as much as a researcher to listen as they are to, to ra- you know, raise their voice and tell me what's important to them. Now so th- it's learning on both sides. There's a third part to the grant. Yes. yes. I'm, go ahead, Carol yes. White. Um, so the third part is really focusing on family caregivers of people living with dementia. We know that about f- 60% of people with dementia will experience some kind of behavioral um, symptoms that are difficult for the caregiver, such as resisting care to being very, very agitated. And 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 we know those are probably the most important predictors of caregiver burden. So this grant is focused on taking an evidence-based intervention to work with family caregivers around how they manage behavioral symptoms. The, the intervention we're using is, is based on kind of a model that behavioral symptoms are really one, unmet challenges with family caregivers or unmet challenges or unmet needs of people with dementia. Maybe they have a urinary tract infection, they're dehydrated, or they have a need that's not being met. So addressing that, um, communication issues between the family caregiver and the person living with dementia, and then maybe something in the environment. We talked about going into people's homes, clutter, or maybe it's a very boring environment. So kind of trying to say um, what might be some of the issues and then helping the caregivers to recognize triggers and then working with them to deal with some of the behavioral challenges. Right, and the this idea of managing behavior versus giving medications. So what we know with dementia right now is the medications that we have, uh, you know, in, in general don't work well. And if they do work, they work for a limited amount of people for a limited amount of time. And so rather than relying on the medications, you know, we can really uh, improve a situation by looking at the environment, by looking at those behavioral triggers. And, I, you know, to me, that's exciting where we can really identify those triggers and those behaviors that are causing the problems. And then let's address that. I think the clutter, I I remember my mother-in-law also had Alzheimer's, and I can remember us going to visit her at her house in Midland, and we had all this stuff, right? We come in with suitcases, we unpack, and we get drinking glasses, and the kitchen is all messy because there's a whole family of four that wasn't there. And she was visibly agitated and kept saying, the stuff, the stuff, there's so much stuff. Mm-hmm. you know. And it was really upsetting to her, and she was mad. Oh, she was so angry at all this stuff that was out on her counter. Changed her environment. Right, and I'm yeah. like, we've got to get the stuff. We have to clear the counters. We, you know, We don't need anything on the counters because then she could calm down. Mm-hmm. And did she? She did calm down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what happens after three years? Um, this is a three-year grant. It is, yes. 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 So Because well, I hate to think of the families you're working with just left hanging. We haven't hanging. even started yet. Now the three years are over. <laughs> yeah. Right. So what we're, I think, by working together, we're really trying to put um, – processes in place, such as the forms in the clinic where, you know, they'll look and see, is somebody really safe to live alone? Um, We'll develop um, collaborations with people so that we're able to continue supporting caregivers. After the three years, long before the three years comes to an end, we'll be looking for more funding as well. But I think it's really, and and the other thing when Carol Zerniel was talking about um, the medications, when you look at the studies related to behavioral interventions with family caregivers, they actually have bigger effect sizes work better than, than the medications. So if we can show positive effects like this, can we have funders be paying for interventions like this as well? Right. 
right. And and having um, systems in place, Carol mentioned, Carol White mentioned processes. So if we are systematically, of our patients who are, have dementia, are, are we finding out if they live alone, you know, and then the safety issue, you know, this idea of, of persons with intellectual disabilities uh, and making sure that we are addressing those unique needs and identifying um, what's dementia and what's, you know, part of their original disability, you know, none of this is, um, none of these issues are easy issues. They're not going to go away, I suspect, in the three years that right. we do that. So the more that we can train people, help reduce the stigma, involve those persons with Alzheimer's in the conversations, um, and also help the caregivers to realize that their life is going on and their loved one's life is going on. You know, the, the living with cancer, you know, I think is a perfect example um, of how we want to allow people to live with this disease the best that they can. And right now we don't do that. Now, the idea uh, for Wilma to identify patients uh, with dementia or, or pre-dementia living alone is really an extension of the work you're already doing with adult protective services on behalf of patients. Well, you know, the, it, it's, um, it's difficult for older people because they can become victims of abuse, and if they have dementia, they're more likely to become right. a victim of abuse. And so if we cross-reference the population of our patients who are at highest risk or have been abused with those that have some sort of cognitive impairment, I suspect we're going to see a lot of crossover. So it's really kind of addressing some of the same problems. And Carol White, as, as you look at the involvement with UT Health, it very much fits with the mission of the uh, university, does it not? Exactly. I think um, there's, a, there's a, a, a lot of excitement about the new Glenn Biggs Institute for Alzheimer's and Neurodegenerative Diseases, knowing that this is such an important, um, this is such an important thing to address in San Antonio. Well, and we're so fortunate to have a premier research institution in San Antonio, like the Biggs Institute, the, the Bar Shop uh, Center. So it's it's a, a privilege to, to work in San Antonio in this environment. Uh, and I think that between the research and then some of the, this is really our grant that we're talking about, it's really the day-to-day -day kinds of things that we can do um, in the meantime while the research is going on to help improve the lives of people who in the families that are living with dementia. So for a caregiver listening, caring for someone with dementia, uh, can they interact with you? Of course. We How do they do that? So they can reach me easily. We have a website, utcaregivers.org, where we list a lot of the events that we're offering. Again, because we, I think we've set up such good relationships. If we are offering something that or don't offer something that, that the caregiver is looking for, we also have have on our website what Caregiver SOS is giving, what ACOG is doing, the Area Agency on Aging. So we have a lot of resources on our care, on our website to direct caregivers to. Right, and, and caregiversos.org, if they want to enter through one of our caregiver specialists, um, they can do that as well. I have to mention the Alzheimer's Association is also a partner on this grant, uh, and so the local Alzheimer's Association here in San Antonio um, is connected to, to this work. So uh, we've, got, we've really got a great group of people who are putting their best thinking together. Because you mentioned early on about uh, how cancer was benefited from walks and ribbons. Uh, the Alzheimer's Association does an annual walk. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And I think that walk apparently has been growing and growing, more people walking, more cities, there's more awareness raised. But I think um, we can do a lot more together than we can do alone. And I think it's a spirit of collaboration across our different groups in the city to me that is really moving this forward. And I'm very excited about that. Well, I thank you for coming in. It's a delightful show and so important. Again, how do people reach you? So they can reach me at utcaregivers.org. And that'll pipe them right into your organization. It will. I'd like yeah. to. Thanks for coming in. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Well, I, really I appreciate love being it. on the show. I'm Ron Aaron with Carol Zerniel. Up next, Take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman, right here on 930 AM, The Answer. You ever wonder what you can learn from listening to WellMed Radio? Hi, I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Cora Juke, is here, nurse practitioner, what can folks learn from WellMed Radio? You know, we talk about a lot of things such as chronic disease management, how to manage your diabetes, your blood pressure, but we also talk about social issues such as what WellMed offers and what you can do to improve your health and improve your life. And it's something that uh, you're newer to WellMed Radio, and I get a kick out of working with you. What is it you like about doing radio? Well... I like to make sure that my patients are educated, that they know how to take care of themselves, because I only get a brief moment in time to take care of them in the office, and I want to partner with them and make sure they have everything they need at home. Nurse practitioner Cora Juke, I'm Ron Aaron. You can catch WellMed Radio Sundays at 5 p.m. exclusively on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Be there. Time for Take 10 on Caregiver SOS On Air. We end each of our programs with an opportunity to bat around a topic with Dr. Jamie Heisman, a nationally known psychotherapist, an expert in not only addictions but caregiving as well. Carol Zerniel, our co-host, is here. I'm Ron Aaron. And, and Carol, one of the issues that many caregivers face is dealing with someone who may have behavioral issues, mental health issues, acting out in inappropriate ways versus someone who is physically ill. That's right. And you know, we know that there is so little out there in terms of help for caregivers. So, Jamie, I thought you might just give us the basics. If, if we have a caregiver, we talk a lot about physical health. But for those caregivers who are dealing with behavioral health issues, you know, what, what's the difference? What, what do we need to know um, if we're dealing with people's behavioral health? Well, that's a great question, and often we do use these words, behavioral health and mental health, interchangeably, but really it, it does help for us to clear it up because I like behavioral health. I think it's a way of being inclusive. I think it includes uh, ways of promoting our well-being by, you know, preventing and or intervening in our diagnoses around mental illness, such as depression or anxiety. But behavioral health is also about lifestyle and ways we can deal with that. Listen, there is no doubt that depression is prevalent in not just our caregivers today, but, but seniors in general. And to me, depression is a really unchecked sort of, um, how do I call it, almost a spiritual cancer that, that seeps into our soul. I believe the first thing we should need to do around our behavioral health at any time or slash mental health is get an assessment and an evaluation by a, a, an excellent licensed clinical social worker, psychologist, or if you know it genetically is in your family and you know that you have clinical depression, go to a psychiatrist to be reevaluated and reset. 
And this can be either for you, the caregiver, or your loved one, the person you're caring for, or both of you. Um, you know, it, it, you mentioned sometimes depression runs in families. So people should, it's not the other person, it can be you as well. Absolutely. In fact, I think you, as well as the caregiver, is what I call the, uh, the corrective emotional experience. I mean, it's so difficult for us to talk to somebody else about their depression, about their mental health, about their anxiety, about their fears, if we're not addressing it in ourselves first. So we have to be that, what I call that program of attraction. I mean, otherwise we're going to be a hypocrite. And, like I always say, you have to start where the person is in front of you, not where you think they need to be. So really to understand their mental health challenges, you need to be looking at your own mental health and behavioral health issues. Well, people that have, um, you know, uh, depression, anxiety, or maybe bipolar disease, other kinds of, of issues that require medications, um, it seems like with the caregivers we've worked with that, that managing the medications is a huge issue for people who are taking medications for, let's say, bipolar disorder. It is. And just so you know, there is tremendous hope out there. We have come, and I just want all our listening audience to know, so far, psychopharmacologically, in terms of medications that treat depression, that treat bipolar disorder, that can treat, you know, even, if you will, certain addictions. This is what we call, and I don't want it to be, primary psychiatric disorders. And we have come very far, but we do need a psychiatrist to be able to assist us. Often our primary care is wonderful, and they do understand it. But really, the psychiatrist is trained with CMEs, continuing medical education, to really know the, the most innovative ways to approach mental illness. So what happens with a caregiver that their loved one keeps kind of falling out of treatment, stopping taking the meds, you know, having these challenging behavior and refusing to get back on their treatment plan? What does a caregiver do at that point? Uh, it's very, very difficult. It's a challenging issue. And what I say is we need a very careful, loving intervention. So we know that we cannot handle it on our own. In fact, what I've said, and I've done a lot of interventions over the years for addictions, and even for people going to skilled nursing facilities, is that one-to-one interventions don't really work well. People have a lot of denial, especially those who are noncompliant or falling in and out, if you will, of of different sort of psychiatric states. So I do believe that we need to be very strategic and get all of our family members involved and to get a third party involved who can educate and empower us in terms of the depression or the anxiety issues and approach our loved one with a loving circle. And for the person who's looking for that therapeutic help, how do you find a therapist who can deal with those issues? I'm a little biased because I write for care, uh, for, excuse me, for psychology today. I do think they have the best search engine I have seen in psychology. Obviously, you should go to your own if you like, uh, Payer, United Health, you know, Aetna, Humana, whomever it is, and they will have a list of providers. However, if you really want to do this, which I think, you know, in terms of interviewing your provider and also getting close to your house, go to psychology today, go to locate a therapist, put your zip code in, and out will pop therapists who are dealing exactly in the, the content and, and the issues you need to. So you can actually look at it, see what payers they take, and call them and interview them and see if you feel comfortable with them. How are they vetted to be sure they really do that? Well, that's a great question. Uh, everybody on there is vetted in terms of malpractice insurance, a current license, and, and their credentials. And if obviously there have been any transgressions, uh, they, they're taken off. They have a very good credentialing process there. 
But again, uh, as I said, you can always contact your own behavioral health um, organization, which is part of your insurance company, to do this as well. I just think you're a little bit shooting in the dark a little bit more that way. He's Dr. Jamie Heisman. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. You're listening to Take 10 on Caregiver SOS on Air on 9.30 a.m., The Answer. Well, Jamie, you mentioned substance abuse uh, a little bit earlier. So what if a caregiver is new to this world of substance abuse? There's a lot of opioid addictions going on. It's it's coming into families that never thought they would be facing this situation. Um, what, what would be a surprise? Um, you know, what is it that someone who's dealing with substance abuse really needs to know? You know, the first thing, Carol, I would say, the, for somebody is to go to an Al-Anon meeting. Al-Anon is the family equivalent, if you will, of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's also a 12-step program, but it's for families who have a loved one or suspect a loved one has an addiction. Uh, and so it's an incredible support circle, and it's free, and all you have to do is go online and just put Al-Anon and put your city's name, and you'll see there's something called a where and when, where these meetings are. They're usually in church basements or schools. And there you'll find an amazing support group. And I think the people that you ask at an Al-Anon meeting will really direct you to the best resources that have helped them and their loved ones. Well, and you've mentioned Al-Anon in the past, and I know that the people that I have dealt with who have been involved with Al-Anon um, have very positive experiences because, I, you know, so many people feel alone. They feel like they're the only ones going through this or they feel like the world is against them or they're embarrassed. You know, this is a, pla- a safe place where they can talk about the issues that their family member has and how it's affecting them. Absolutely, and nobody even uses last names here. So you actually are so anonymous that you're just your first name and your first and your last initial. And, and you're so correct. It is a loving environment because people have gone through uh, what you've gone through. I think it's just like Caregiver SOS, which is you know the Wellman Charitable Foundation's fabulous programs, that when you find like-minded people who have taken the journey, um, you not only connect and get out of your isolated world and the fear, but you also find resources. So it, it does take a, a leap of faith, but groups like Al-Anon or Caregiver SOS are out there, and they're the first step I would take. Well, and let's go to the other end of the spectrum in the short time we have. What if someone is afraid of the person that they're caring for? What if the person is violent, um, threatening? What should a person do if they are living with someone who has violent tendencies? That's a very difficult question. Obviously, once again, you have to get your family engaged, and you have to get a geriatric care manager engaged. You can also look, if you will, for an elder care attorney that can help them, but when an addict is violent or when a person with mental health issues is violent and psychotic, um, and this is, I'm going to throw this softball right back to you, Carol, because you headed up an uh, area agency on aging, and you're deep into the quasi-governmental world, but you can also find, uh, obviously, resources by contacting uh, the Area Agency on Aging in your area and find out what the legal ramifications and what the steps are in terms of having somebody who may be violent. Right. And um, I also you know, recommend, you know, it may not be a case where you call Adult Protective Services, but you know, calling 911 if you really are and feel like you're in, in imminent danger or someone's in imminent danger um, and our folks with Adult Protective Services um, you know, can can assist in helping identify ways you can get a person t- removed from the home uh, for a few days. We are flat out of time. Dr. Jamie Heisman, thank you so much. 
we will pick this top up, topic up again soon because it's so important. Carol Zerniel, I'm Ron Aaron. Thanks for joining us on Caregiver SOS on Air on 930 AM, The Answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS on Air. Presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer.